All right, church. Well, let's take our Bibles together and turn. Are you ready now to the book of Romans? We are beginning a new series today in the book of Romans called Holy Unholy. Let me start by saying this. It has been my great privilege to minister the word of God to you for the last 12 years, 10 years here in Decatur, two years before that in Arthur. In fact, this has been the greatest privilege of my life to do that. And over that time, over those 12 years, we've studied a lot of books in the Bible together, Old and New Testament. And all throughout that time, I've waited with anticipation for when I get to preach this great book, Romans. And I'll tell you the truth, I wasn't ready to preach Romans in year one. I wasn't ready to preach Romans in year five or year eight. But now, 12 years in, I'm 40 years old. Now it's time, I think, I think I'm ready, we'll see. God has been working on me throughout this summer, getting me prepared to preach this book, so we're gonna study the book of Romans together. And some of you might say, well, what's the big deal, Pastor Tony? Why all the fear and trepidation? That's not like you. Well, the reason is because Romans is a great book. I love this book. And I know many of you love this book too, and so I, I don't wanna mess it up. I don't, I don't want, let me say it this way, I want you to love this book as much as I love it and embrace the beauty of this message. The Puritan preacher, Thomas Drakes, he called Romans the quintessence and perfection of saving doctrine. What do you think about that? The quintessence and essence of saving doctrine. Martin Luther called Romans the perfect, purest gospel. Grant Osborne, one of my professors at Trinity, one of my favorite Bible commentators, he says this about Romans. You can read this on the screen. The greatest, he calls Romans the greatest book ever penned in human history. The poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge said similarly, I think the epistle to the Romans is the most profound work in existence. And that statement can be substantiated by the fact that the two greatest theologians in human history were saved by their reading of the book of Romans, Augustine, and then later, Martin Luther. In fact, Martin Luther's reading of the book of Romans launched the Protestant uh, Reformation. So yeah, no pressure for Pastor Tony. (laughs) It's just the most important book ever written. Obviously, it's part of the Bible, the most important book ever written. To be honest, I, I am still a little bit fearful as we dive into uh, Harvest, uh, into Romans this morning at Harvest. I'm fearful that, I don't know, maybe a few chapters in, I'll get overwhelmed and change course and decide to preach a shorter book like Jude or something. I'm a little nervous. I am a little fearful. But more than that, I am thrilled and excited about how God is gonna use this book to change us in the next few months, years. I'm excited about what God, the the, the person that I'm gonna be at the end of this book is gonna be different than the man that I am right now. And I'm praying that for you, church. Can, Can I ask you to pray that for yourselves and to pray that for our church? I want us to be different at the end of this book than we are now. Better disciples, more mature disciples who worship, walk, and work for Christ. 
God can do that. That's the power of his word. Let me invite you to pray towards that end. Can I ask you boldly too? I know I'm getting really personal with you this morning. Can I ask you to pray for your pastor every week as I present this message that God would use it to be impactful in the lives of our church? Can you commit to that for me? I'm gonna pray for that right now, and then I wanna, I wanna spend just about 30 minutes this morning. This won't be a long sermon. I can't promise that all the sermons in Romans won't be long, but this one, I just wanna spend about 30 minutes uh, giving a bird's eye view of this book and overviewing it for you. So let me pray. Pray that God would use this in our lives in the coming months. Yes, Lord, yes. Use your scriptures to change us, to transform us into the image of Christ. God, I pray in faith that we would be different people through every week through the preaching of your word. And God, I know that there are people in this room who are familiar with this book of Romans. Maybe God led to Christ through their reading of Romans. Maybe memorized large sections of this book. Maybe read this book dozens of times in their lifetime. God, for that mature Christian, would you, in their heart, give them such great, new, fresh understanding of your truths and of the gospel and of this book, I pray. God, do that work for the young Christian, for the mature Christian, for the seasoned saints that are in our church this morning. Do that work, I pray in Jesus, and I pray in faith. Amen. All right, here's what I want to do this morning, the time that we have left. I want to answer three basic questions for you. Let's answer who, let's answer when, and let's answer why with the book of Romans. Let's start with the who. Who wrote the book of Romans? Who wrote the book of Romans? That's right, the Apostle Paul. You know it, I know it. The Apostle Paul wrote it to the church in Rome. Romans 1, verse 1 says this. Read this with me in your Bibles. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul wrote this book. We're only going to cover one verse in Romans today, Romans 1, 1. I promise that my pace will be faster in this series than that. There are 433 verses in the book of Romans. I'm going to preach less than 433 ser uh, sermons on this book, okay? My pace will be slightly faster than that. Romans 1.1 tells us that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. And if you're wondering to whom did he write it, that's in verse 7. In fact, verses 1 through 7, that's all one sentence in the Greek. Paul loves run-on sentences, so he tells you at the end of a lot of clauses, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints. Paul, this, Paul wrote this letter to a young church in Rome, which coincidentally wasn't founded by Paul, and Paul had never even been there. He wrote this letter to a group of believers in a church that he hadn't, hadn't visited. Oftentimes, you know, when Paul's writing a letter, he's addressing a specific situation in, in Ephesus or in Corinth or in Philippi. And so he's dealing with, with issues that he knows firsthand because he visited those churches and he planted those churches. The, Romans is an entirely different book. Romans has more of a general doctrinal quality about it because Paul didn't know with specificity the issues that were going on in the church. 
And so it's more a purely doctrinal letter. Paul's able, let me say it this way, Paul's able to elaborate on the specifics of the gospel more because he's not addressing specific issues in the church. I think that's key. By the way, Paul did eventually visit the church in Rome. Those of you who were here when I preached the book of Acts, you know that the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome in change, chains, visiting the church. And Paul actually got there after being shipwrecked in Malta. He got arrested in Jerusalem, was shipped all the way to Rome. Their, their, their boat wrecked in Malta. Paul survived that. He went up to Rome, met with the church leaders, met with the church there, and in chains before Caesar, waiting for his trial. That's how the book of Acts ends. So eventually, Paul does get to Rome. But Paul wrote this book, the book that's in front of you, that was written before Paul went to Rome, before he had visited the church, before he had even traveled to the city, which, that's extraordinary if you think about it. You know, Paul has, I mean, he's an apostle, right? He's one of these men that God had handpicked that saw Jesus that were sent out to launch the church and also to write scripture. So he has that, that leadership role, even though he never visited the church. And so Paul is this apostle, is this spiritual leader. He writes with this kind of grandfatherly spiritual leadership to a church that he had never even visited. And in fact, here's part of the reason that he wrote this book. He saw Rome and the, the, that unique city at the time as a place where he could might launch his, the second part of his ministry into the western part of the Roman Empire. Here's why I say that. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 9, look at this with me in your Bibles. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit, in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, church in Rome, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul always wanted to go to Rome. He probably didn't plan to go to Rome as a prisoner in chains, but God does what he wants to do, right? And he got there eventually. Paul says in Romans 15, verse 24, you can read this on the screen or turn there in chapter 15. Paul says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Paul didn't want to just go to Rome. He wanted to go beyond Rome and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. You know, Paul had this insatiable desire to get the gospel out, to get the gospel out to the four corners of the world, to obey Jesus's commandment to us, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Paul took Jesus's statement there seriously. He wanted to get, get the gospel as far as he could get it to the western part of the Roman Empire. Paul says in Romans 15, 20, this is on the screen too, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, unless I build on some, someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul wanted to turn over fresh ground for the gospel and to reach the lost. And he was hoping to use this city, Rome, and this church as a, as a launch base to, to be sent out to continue his work as an evangelist. So that's the who. Paul wrote this book to the church in Rome, a church he hadn't yet visited, which begs the question then, when did Paul write Romans? When did he write it? 
If he wrote it before he visited the church in Rome, then when did he write it? Well, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I just want to give you what is the best evidence for this dating. Approximately A.D. 57. When did he write this book? Approximately A.D. 57. Coincidentally, that date, A.D. 57, that's 25, roughly 25 years after Jesus' death. And that's 10 years before Paul's death in Rome. So if you're trying to get chronologically oriented here, Jesus dies, he's resurrected. 25 years later, Paul writes the book of Rome, Romans. And then 10 years after he writes this book, he dies in Rome. And by the way, just a little reminder about the Apostle Paul. Paul wasn't always the Apostle Paul. Before he was the Apostle Paul, he was a man named Saul who brutally persecuted the church. In fact, he was there when the Jewish leaders stoned the saintly Stephen to death. And this guy Saul, as he was known then, was well on his way to becoming the greatest persecutor of the Christian church in the first century. He was a sinner. He was a murderer. He was somebody that persecuted the, ch the church. But then, you guys know the story, God intervened. God said, that's enough of that. Some of you have a story like that. You were sending it up, and God said, that's enough. You're going to follow me now. You're going to serve me now. That's exactly what God did in Saul's life. He showed up on the road to Damascus. Jesus himself said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this guy, Saul, all of a sudden got radically saved. And instead of becoming a persecutor of the church, he became, let's just say, the greatest church planter in human history and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That didn't happen right away. He spent about three years, according to the book of Galatians, in exile in Arabia and then later in Damascus, sorting out his Christian faith. But then Paul got busy preaching the gospel. He went up to the city of Antioch with his compatriot Barnabas and they preached the gospel in Antioch and they helped build the church in Antioch. Some years later, Paul and Barnabas went on what's called the first missionary journey and they started traveling throughout the Roman Empire and they traveled to Cyprus and to Perga and to Pamphylia, preaching the gospel and planting churches. They went on later to Iconium and to Lystra and to Derbe and to Derby. While Paul and Barnabas were at Lystra, some of you might remember this. At first, when they got there, they spoke so well that the, the people were so in awe of them that they, they thought they were gods, Zeus and Hermes, and they started to worship Paul and Barnabas. Well, Paul and Barnabas disabused them of that notion and told them we're not gods. We represent the true God. They didn't like that. They got angry, so they stoned Paul and Barnabas, to, to, leaving him for dead. Did that stop Paul from preaching the gospel? No, he just kept on preaching and he kept planting churches. Later, Paul went on the second missionary journey with another fellow traveler, a man named Silas and a young disciple named Timothy. And they traveled through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, preaching the gospel, making disciples, planting churches, in some cases supporting the churches that they had already planted. And then Paul, all of a sudden, while he's at Troas, he has this dream. And this man from Macedonia says, hey, come preach the gospel to me. So what did Paul do? 
He went to Macedonia to preach the gospel to the Macedonians. And so Paul and his companions, they went to Philippi and they went to Thessalonica and they went to Berea in the region of Macedonia and they preached the gospel and they planted churches. And sometimes they got physically accosted for that preaching. They got put in prison in Philippi. They kept preaching. They kept planting churches. Eventually Paul traveled to the cities of Athens and Corinth and then he crawled crossed the Aegean Sea and came to the city of Ephesus. More gospel preaching, more church planting, more evangelizing, more disciple making. And if you remember, it's when Paul in the second missionary journey when he's in Ephesus, that's when that riot started in the city. And all these Ephesians started shouting that stupid chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Y'all remember that? And they screamed that stupid chant for two hours. And Paul, it's amazing, he survived that riot. He survived a riot there. He survived a riot in Thessalonica. He survived imprisonment in Philippi. He survived a stoning in Lystra. He survived shipwreck later on the island of Malta. If I were to make a movie about the Apostle Paul, I would entitle the movie, How Many Ways Can One Man Cheat Death? Because you're just reading the book of Acts. It's like, how's this guy still alive? He's just, he's just constantly at death's door, but he, somehow he survives. If ever there was a man who embodied Lottie Moon's statement, I am immortal till my work on earth is done, that was the Apostle Paul. He was immortal on this earth until his work was done. Later on, everybody still tracking with me? Y'all with me? Just give me a thumbs up. Everybody good? Later on in what's called the third missionary journey, Paul went back to some of these cities. He went to Ephesus and he spent two years in that city encouraging the brothers, helping the church to develop. This was a slower journey than his first and second missionary journey. Then after that two years in Ephesus, he traveled to the city of Corinth. He spent three months in Corinth in AD 57. And it is thought by scholars that it was during that three month period in Corinth that Paul sat down and he wrote the greatest book in the history of the world. Actually, he didn't write it. He dictated it to his amunensis, a man named Tertius. That's how it happened. That's how this book was written. The best evidence for what we have about when this book was written is 57 AD. Would I take a bullet for that? No. Would... Can we know for sure that that's the exact date? No. Would I take a bullet for the inspiration and the authority of the book of Romans? Yes, I would. That's a hill to die on as far as I'm concerned. So that's the when. Let's talk about the why. Why did Paul write this letter to the Romans? Why did Paul, if he was in Corinth during that three-month period, why did he sit down and write a letter to a church that he had never visited in a city that he had never traveled to. Why not write a letter to Jerusalem? Why not write a letter to Lystra or to Derby or, you know, to those guys that stoned him and said, nanny, nanny, boo, boo, I'm still alive preaching the gospel. <laughs> Why not write a letter to Berea? Paul had visited those churches. He had visited those cities. He had planted those churches. Why wouldn't he write them? Why wouldn't he write another letter to the Thessalonians? Third Thessalonians. Why wouldn't he write another letter to the Galatians? 
or to the Corinthians. Those churches were dysfunctional. They needed a lot of apostolic exhortation. So why, why a book to the Romans? Do you guys ask questions like this of the Bible? When you're studying the Bible, I ask questions like this. So why would he do this? Why would he write to the Romans? And then here's another question I ask. Why did he write such a long letter to them? It's the longest letter that he wrote. Romans, wouldn't he have more to say to the churches that he visited and less to say to the church that he had never visited? Here's why he wrote Romans. Here's why Paul wrote this book. Here's what you might call the purpose of this book. Let me quote Grant Osborne again to answer that why question. It's the best answer to that question that I've found. Osborne says, I believe Paul's main purpose for writing to the Romans was that he believed God was leading him to begin the second half of his life's work in the western half of the Roman Empire. He hoped the church at Rome would have the same place in his mission work in the West that Antioch had in his three missionary journeys to the East to be the sending church. Thus in part, Romans is a letter of introduction to begin familiarizing the church of Rome with Paul and with his gospel. In other words, Romans is Paul's way of synthesizing the truth of the gospel in one medium to large sized letter. That's why he wrote it. Why was this book written? 433 verses, 7,111 words. Why was it written? Here's my answer. To synthesize the essence of the gospel for the growing Christian church. To synthesize the essence of the gospel for the growing Christian church. Let me read verse one again for you. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart, for the gospel of God. Paul's great passion was the gospel. Paul says in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why, Paul? Why? Why are you so eager? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also, let me paraphrase, to you heathens over here in Decatur, i.e. the Greek. It's the power of salvation for us, Jew and Gentile. That's a good spot for an amen. Are y'all with me, church? Do y'all believe the gospel? Do y'all know this gospel? So why was this book written? Why did, why would, why did Paul sit down and pen the greatest document in, the, in human history? He did it so that Romans might know the gospel. He did it so that the church, even beyond Rome and places like Spain and the western part of the Roman Empire, might know the gospel. He did it even so that we here in Decatur, Illinois, might know the gospel. And let me say this as well. Listen up here for a second. This is, oh, this is so important. I want y'all to know this. I want y'all to embrace this. The book of Romans wasn't just written by Paul. You know that, don't you? We here at Harvest, we believe in something called the dual authorship of Scripture. We believe that the Holy Spirit 
breathed out these words using Paul, the author, to write them out. We believe, here's the Greek word, theopanoustos, that God's word is God-breathed. That's what God has given you here. So yeah, Paul wrote this for the Romans so that they might embrace the gospel, but the Holy Spirit recorded this so that you in Decatur might know the gospel. Does that make you feel special? It should. It should. God wrote this for you. This is for you, church, so you might know the gospel. Because we believe here that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intention of the heart. Do you believe that? We believe that all scripture is theopanoustos, breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We believe that the book of Romans, like all prophecy of scripture, was not produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Romans was written by Paul for the church in Rome, but also Romans was written by the Holy Spirit for the church in Decatur and every other church around the world beyond even Rome, beyond even Spain, beyond even the Mediterranean, beyond even the Atlantic Ocean, beyond even the Pacific Ocean, to all churches everywhere who would embrace the truth of the gospel. And to that you might say, okay, Pastor Tony, you're amped up this morning. But tell me something. What is the gospel? You've said that word a lot this morning, Pastor Tony. Can you tell us plainly what that is? Can you spell it out for us? What is the gospel? I read a book this last week by Beckett Cook called A Change of Affection, a gay man's incredible story of redemption. Great book. Great book. Go home this afternoon, order this book and read it. It's about a man who came to Christ after many years of success, success, you know, in Hollywood, in the movie industry, and yet all of that success and all the indulgence of his sinful desires left him empty, and sad and desirous of something more in life. And he tells a story about how he went to this coffee shop in this state and there was something in his soul that wasn't right. And when he got to this coffee shop, he saw this group of Christians that were gathered around with their Bibles open at a coffee shop, studying the book of Romans. And he said he hadn't seen a Bible opened in public in years. And here these Christians were, studying the Bible in public, studying the book of Romans. And so Beckett, he went up to one of these Christians who had their Bible open at this coffee shop, and he just asked them, point blank, what is Christianity? You're a Christian, right? What is it? What is this thing that you believe? And this Christian boldly and lovingly shared the gospel with Beckett. You know what else that Christian did? crazy the nerve of this Christian 
he invited Beckett to church. What a crazy thought. The nerve of that guy doing that. And you know what? Beckett accepted that invitation and came to church. And sure enough, the gospel was preached again, and he heard it the second time, and he got radically saved at that church service through the gospel. And so I guess the question I want to ask you, yeah, I want you to go and read this book and be encouraged by this, but I want to know, I, I want you to ask yourself this question. Can you share the gospel like that with somebody at a coffee shop? If somebody comes up to you and says, what is this hope that you have? What is Christianity? I need to know. What would you say? Could you answer that? Do you know how to articulate the hope that you have in you in Christ Jesus? Let me say it this way. Could you synthesize the message of the book of Romans so that someone like Augustine or Martin Luther or Beckett Cook might receive and believe the gospel? Could you do that? Let me do that for you now. Let me just share with you an easy way to do that through a few diagrams that I've shared dozens of times throughout my life. A really simple way to just share the gospel with somebody. You can draw this on a napkin if you want to. You can diagram this on a whiteboard. You can download, download an app on your phone and do it that way. If you want some advice on which app to use, come talk to me after the service and I'll tell you which app best presents this. I'm going to do it with you this morning by PowerPoint. So here's the gospel. Everybody ready? Tell me you're ready. Are you ready now? I shared this with uh, our kids at Harvest at uh, VBS this summer. Our kids, it was Tuesday night, late. And let's just say that our kids were semi-attentive. Can I say it that way? I think they were too hyped up after game time with Doug Henderson. That's what I think. But you're an attentive crowd this morning. I want you to hear this. What is the gospel? Some might refer to this as the Romans wrote. First of all, God created man. He created us to be in fellowship with him. Genesis 1 and 2. God took man and woman, Adam and Eve. He put them in the Garden of Eden. And God walked with them in the cool of the day. He had unbroken fellowship with them. They had unbroken fellowship with the God of the universe. But the Bible says that man rebelled against God. Adam and Eve both listened to Satan and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 3. And they brought sin into our world. And because of that sin, now human beings, the offspring of Adam and Eve, you and me, we have a broken relationship with God. God is holy and righteous. We are unholy. We are unrighteous. God is perfect. We are imperfect. And because of that, because God cannot have a relationship with sin-stained, unholy creatures, we are separated from him. Paul says it this way. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. That's the essential message of Romans 1 through 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All, and, and Paul walks you through that in chapters 1 through 3. Good people, quote unquote, good people, Jews, Gentiles, it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter how good you think you are, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all, here's my framing, holy, unholy, before a holy God. If you want to know about my sermon series logo and 
My sermon is, why is it called holy unholy? That's Paul's argument in Romans 1 through 3. We are holy unholy before a holy God. That's who we are. And if you're wondering about the raven there, well, the raven symbolizes that. The raven symbolizes death. You know, ravens are they're scavengers. They're carrion creatures. They, they feast on death. Remember that Edgar Allan Poe poem, The Raven? Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, quoth the raven, nevermore. That's just a freaky poem. And I'm trying to capture that here. The raven symbolizes death and darkness. The raven symbolizes bleakness and unholiness. And some of you are saying, well, this series sounds great, Pastor Tony. That sounds really cheery. Can't wait for that. No, listen. I've said this before. You got to get the bad news before you get the good news, okay? You got to know the bad news before you can embrace the good news. And it's bad. It's really bad. It's worse than you think. It gets worse before it gets better. Because, back to my diagram, this is you. This is you over here. Harvest decator, all the way to the left. Unholy, imperfect, unrighteous, sin-stained. And none of your good deeds can bridge this chasm between you and God. You can't bridge it with your works. You can't bridge it with your Bible reading. You can't bridge it with your going to church. There's no way to do that. Part of Paul's argument in the book of Romans is that you can't earn your way to salvation. You can't because you are holy, unholy. You need something to make you holy. That's the argument. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's where you're headed. Death, hell, your sin has led you there. Jesus himself said to us, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the heaven, the kingdom of heaven. Uh-oh, we're in trouble. Jesus said, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Uh-oh, that ain't going to happen. Not in our own working. So what do we do? How do we traverse this untraversable chasm? How do we overcome that profound unholiness that is part of our human condition? Here it is. Here's the gospel. Are you ready? I know you're ready. Get on with it, Pastor Tony, you're saying. Tommy Nelson said this about the book of Romans. He said the theme of the book of Romans is how a holy God can get an unholy person into the holiness of God's presence and God not compromise his holiness one whit. That's what the book of Romans is about. How a perfect God can get an imperfect person into a perfect place and God still be perfect. And here's how it happens. Romans 5, 8. Do you know that verse? Can you quote it in a pinch? Can you quote it at Starbucks if somebody asks you what's your hope? But God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, what happened, church? Christ died for us. He loves us that much. He died for us and made a way for us to restore this relationship with God. What do you think about that, Harvest Decatur? That's something to get excited about. Romans 6.23 says this, the wages of sin is death, but, 
It's one of the greatest buts in the Bible. Praise God for that conjunction. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the diagram. God made a way for this chasm to be crossed. God made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, to pay for our sin and make us holy. Christ came to earth and died for our sins, but he didn't stop there. He didn't just die. He was resurrected from the dead. And so in doing that, Christ put death to death. Christ put death to death. If I could symbolize that for you in my sermon graphic, just imagine Jesus with a double-barreled shotgun shooting that raven. What do you think about that? Do you like that image? That's what Jesus did. That's how he saved us. That's the gospel. And the book of Romans says this, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, Harvest Decatur. What do you think about that? You're still thinking about Jesus with a double-barreled shotgun, aren't you? <laughs> this is the gospel. And some of you might say, Pastor Tony, come on. I mean, that's kind of simple. That's, that's kind of simplistic, isn't it? I mean, that's even reductionistic. Listen, yeah, I know, I know there's more to it than that. I mean, there's, there's 7,000 plus words in Romans that we'll work through. The gospel is fully orbed, and there's a lot of implications of the gospel. But let me say this, too. The gospel is simple. It's so simple that little kids can embrace it and believe it. And you don't have to be simplistic or reductionistic to tell the gospel simply and succinctly. Some of you wish Pastor Tony could be a little more succinct. I know. You can... You can Communicate this to other people without being simplistic or reductionistic. Here's, here's a way to be reductionistic and to pervert the gospel, which sometimes happens. If you tell somebody, if you vote for Jesus, all your wildest dreams will come true, that's reductionistic to a place that leads to error. Don't do that. But if you can communicate the essence of this in 30 seconds, 60 seconds, two minutes, five minutes, then do that. Let me do that for you now in, in 30 seconds. Start your clock. The essence of the gospel is this. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're unholy before a holy God, and you can't save yourself. But God in his grace sent Jesus Christ, his son, to die on the cross for our sins, and your faith in him bridges the gap between you and God and allows you to live with him for eternity. How's that? How many seconds is that? 22? I could fill that eight seconds with some other stuff. <laughs> Your faith in the perfect sacrifice Jesus makes you perfect before a perfect God. Makes you who are holy, unholy, holy before the Lord. Do you know that, church? Do you believe that? If you haven't staked your hopes for eternity on Jesus Christ. You need to do that. If you're staking your claim for eternity, your hopes for eternity on your good works, that ain't going to cut it. You need another way. You need Jesus. If I haven't disabused you of that notion that your good works aren't going to cut it, come back next week and we'll talk about it some more, okay? 
Romans 1 through 3. We are holy, unholy before a holy God, and Jesus Christ makes us holy. Here's how the old hymn writer Edward Mote said it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You are wholly unholy, church, but wholly leaning on Jesus' name. Aren't you now? Let's pray, and then we can sing that together. Worship team, come forward. Let me encourage you in the quietness of your own heart right now to thank the Lord for making you holy, for making you perfect by his blood. It's not your righteousness that saves you. It's Jesus' righteousness given to you by a gift given to you by faith, given to you by the grace of God. You are not righteous in yourself, but you are righteous in Christ. Thank the Lord for that. Jesus, our hope is built on nothing less than your blood and righteousness. You put death to death. You made a way for us to have eternal life. And we love you for that. We worship you for that. God, do that work in our heart throughout this series that needs to be done. Even as saved believers, sometimes we depend too much on our own righteousness or our own works. And God, faith is faith for our salvation. It's also faith for our sanctification. You are making us more like you by your power, not our power. So, Lord, we believe that in this place. We worship you for this. We thank you for your blood and for your righteousness that covers our sin, makes us holy before our holy God. Lord, if there's somebody here this morning who doesn't know that, hasn't embraced that Holy Spirit, lead them to that truth right now. May they see it and embrace it. I pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together.